This is Mormon Awakenings. Please email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. There's a 12-year-old girl who lives in my house who stayed up all night the other night watching season one of Teen Wolf. She discovered it on Netflix. Actually, she didn't even discover it. I introduced her to it because... To my great shame, I had watched several seasons of Teen Wolf with some of the older children that grew up in my house. Anyways, the other night, she stayed up all night from like 10 o'clock till 7 in the morning binge-watching season one of Teen Wolf. And it's understandable why she did it. Teen Wolf is awesome. It's got every dramatic element you want there's danger there's romance there's competition there's rivalries at the school there's a life-threatening menace out there aka the wolves they're hunters parties i mean it's full of all the drama that we love and while you know it's not exactly academy award winning quality acting the acting is not bad the actors and the actresses are nice to look at. The sets are adequate. There's fog and long lens shots and all this sort of stuff that make it cinematically appealing. There's good angsty music. It has all the elements. And so this 12-year-old girl couldn't control herself. She started watching Teen Wolf and just kept watching and watching and watching and watching. The drama had just enveloped her. The drama. Now... The show is hardly believable. I mean, it's about, it's about teens, and it's about werewolves. There go the name, Teen Wolf. So, so the teens in the show, some of them get bit by werewolves, and then they become werewolves. So that's the show. Th this is not a believable premise at all. Everyone knows it. She knows it. She's 12. She knows it's, that that premise is ridiculous. I'm sure while they were shooting the show, all of the actors and actresses were, knew that this was a completely ridiculous story. They probably laughed about it while they were even shooting. It was, it was so ridiculous. Yet, the actors and the writers and the film crew and the editors and all of that stuff, they had all combined to convince the fewer, in, in this case, this 12-year-old girl, that... It, it was believable. The viewer of this show feels something. It's, it's the strangest phenomenon. How on earth does that happen? That's the first question. How on earth can they do that in such a convincing way based on such a ridiculous premise? Teens becoming werewolves. How on earth can they take that ridiculous premise and then convince the viewer that, that it's so realistic that, that the viewer gets so engulfed by the feelings and the drama that they, that they forget all reality and just get lost inside this show to the point where you'll, you'll, you know, in this case, she binge watched like 10 hours straight. Incredible how we love our dramas, how we love to forget the real world around us and get absorbed in this drama, this made up world. And we all do it. It's not, I mean, I'm making fun of her a little bit, but we all do it. We've all binge watched. 
We've all watched the World Series or the Super Bowl. We've all engaged in gossip or some form of, of drama. We've all suspended our disbelief, suspended our attachment to the real world as we perceive it, and then have descended into some kind of false drama. Depending on how your brain's wired, you either take in your drama through books or you take it in through podcast series or you take it in through Netflix or you take it in through gossiping at the office or gossiping at the ward. You buy tickets to live events, plays, or sporting events. You suspend something and you enter this dramatic. We all do it. We all seek this drama. It's exciting. It's surprising. It's fun. It gives us the sense that the stakes are quite high. And then sometimes even we feel like we learn something about ourselves or other people or human nature by watching, participating, becoming absorbed, absorbed in these sort of things. The Hindus have a concept called Leela. And simply put, Leela is the eternal play, the endless play, the divine play of Brahman, who's the supreme God. That's the first idea associated with Leela, divine play by, by God. But then the second idea related to, to Leela is that that's all that life is. All that life is is just some big divine play, a big game, or a big drama, or just a big season of Teen Wolf in the metaphorical sense. Not real, not important, just interesting, fun, surprising, entertaining, dramatic. That's it. And it just goes on and on and on. That's what the Hindus believe. And again, uh, per usual, I'm brutalizing it. I'm oversimplifying it. But that's basically it. Life is just the play, the eternal play of God. And there's something about this idea that holds some real appeal, particularly whenever you start to think about the eternities. Because there's something weird about the eternities, and it's that the eternities never end. So if the eternities never end, if life's infinite, what are we going to be doing forever? And how does this particular moment that we're experiencing now, how does this relate to the forever? Well, Leela says... It's all a bit of fun. It's all for experience. It's all kind of a game. We're doing this to understand ourselves better, but we've voluntarily suspended our disbelief or we've voluntarily believed that what's going on right now is important, but that's just, you know, part of the dramatic exercise that we're all engaged in. And then at the end of the day, well, you know, it's really not that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things, whatever it is that seems so important right now. In this way, Teen Wolf is instructive, right? Whether Tyler makes first line on the, the lacrosse team, which is the plot line of the very first episode of Teen Wolf, well, that's, in the grand scheme of things, not all that important. It's just a moment, a dramatic moment, in a series of dramatic moments, in a series of episodes, in a series of series of yet just one more network Netflix show. It's just Leela. And yet we all enter into it voluntarily. We suspend voluntarily our sense of disbelief and instead believe that what's happening is real because that's what makes it all interesting because it's more fun when it seems real. But at the end of the day, it's all just 
Leela, that's what the Hindus are kind of saying. Anyways, Leela, of course, is a fundamentally different idea than our notion of probation and of life being a probationary period. Because, you know, if you're on probation, I mean, let's think back to college or think back to high school. If you're on academic probation, for example, it means you're really close to blowing it, you know, being kicked out of school, being suspended, having to repeat 10th grade or 11th grade. Or So if life's a probationary period, well, then, you know, you better not screw it up because the consequences, those are eternal. And since you're on probation, well, that means you got, you know, you got one last chance. You don't get to probation without already having screwed up a lot, you know, and you're on probation, which means you only get, you know, one, one chance left. Maybe if you screw up one more time, well, that's it. And this way of thinking, well, it's not an eternal game. I'll tell you that it's, it's, you better do it right, right now. You better salvage whatever's left because the consequences of your bad conduct, those are eternal and unchanged. Well, that's a very different idea than Leela, isn't it? And it's easy, frankly, to get freaked out by the whole probationary idea. Unless, of course, the probation itself is just one more dramatic play that we enter into the probation willingly suspending our disbelief, willingly knowing that the concept of probation is going to, well, it's going to make everything a little more exciting. And so we enter into it suspending voluntarily our disbelief at the beginning that makes the whole probationary period more exciting for us. Well, that's how Leela would explain it. But we don't believe in Leela. We believe in probation. Or do we? Say what you want about Joseph Smith. I know people get very exercised about Joseph Smith, the great prophet, but also the great polygamist, the man who translated the Book of Mormon through the power of God, but also, increasingly, it seems like the man who produced the Book of Abraham from we're not quite sure what, He's a divisive figure, even inside our community, even among those who believe. Nonetheless, Joseph Smith said some incredible things, one of which is in the Doctrine and Covenants, which says eternal punishment really isn't eternal punishment. It's just called eternal punishment for effect. And I know some of you are thinking, now, hold on, I don't remember reading that. But that's basically what Joseph Smith is saying in Doctrine and Covenants section 19, in the first few verses of section 19, God tells Joseph Smith, which is really what section 19 is. Section 19 is what God is telling Joseph Smith. And you can believe that or not, but that's how it's presented. It's presented as God telling Joseph Smith these things. And what God is telling Joseph Smith is basically, yeah, yeah, we call it eternal punishment. We call it endless punishment. And that's the reward you get for bad behavior. But You know, I'm really just saying it that way, using those terms, endless and eternal, and because it will have an effect on the hearts and minds of the children of men. In other words, I got him using this fancy eternal punishment language just for effect, so that you'll think it's important, that that what you do during this life matters, you know, that there is good and there, there is evil, and it matters. But I'm God, and, you know, I can do do what I want, and it's not really endless. It's not really eternal. I'm just using that as, you know, to freak you out a little bit. So you'll take life seriously so that you'll suspend your disbelief regarding this big probationary drama we all seem to be embroiled in. 
That's what God tells Joseph Smith in section 19. It's almost as if he's acknowledging Leela, isn't it? Joseph Smith said something else, which was very interesting and controversial. He basically said there's, there really isn't a hell. I mean, there are degrees of glory, celestial, terrestrial, celestial. You know, there's a, there's a bunch of different places you can go. But Joseph Smith said, they're all so much better. Even the crappiest kingdom, this is what, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said, even the worst place in the next life is so much better than this life that if we knew about it, we'd all go kill ourselves tomorrow just to get there. Those words were attributed to Joseph Smith in a speech that's not in our canon of scripture. And frankly, those words are somewhat contradicted by section 76, which describes these three levels of glory. In section 76, it describes the lowest level, the telestial kingdom. And, you know, it sounds like your company in that kingdom is going to be, well, it's going to be some pretty unsavory characters. Nonetheless, I think it's safe to say that we, as a group, really, we, we don't believe in hell. We believe that whatever you get in the next life is going to be way better than this life. And what I'm saying is you start to read some of the things that Joseph Smith was really saying, and you start thinking that, well, he starts to sound like a Hindu. Just as an aside, what's also very interesting is that whenever anyone takes positions that are of the similar type as what Joseph Smith talked about, well, you know, punishment really is an eternal punishment. It's not, I mean, let's not take any of this literally. There's not really a hell. You know, it's, it's not that big of a deal. Let's all just settle down. Whenever anyone says those sort of things, the vast majority of the rest of the people on earth freak out. And I'll explain what I mean. There was a very famous preacher, a guy named Carlton Pearson during the 90s in Tulsa, Oklahoma, he started this church, a megachurch. You've heard of megachurches, I'm sure. Joel Osteen is a guy you may have heard of. He has a mega, mega church in Dallas, Texas. And then he broadcasts all over the world. He has like 10 million people who watch via the internet or radio or TV. And then he has this huge stadium. This It's like a basketball arena. And every week he just packs it in. And, you know, these megachurches, I don't want to sound cynical here, but they're lucrative. They pass the proverbial plate around the basketball arena, and then they send out emails to all the people watching online. And, you know, you don't have to have a big percentage of that group contributing for a megachurch to become a very lucrative thing. Well, Carlton Pearson in the 90s had a growing megachurch. And his megachurch was, it was sort of independent, but it was part of this Pentecostal league of sorts sort of a governing body, but, you know, he held the franchise for Tulsa and he was growing this big church and, and getting donations and they were going up and, he, you know, his pay as a pastor was, I mean, he was getting rich. Let's put it that way. People flocked to him. Well, over time, his theological understanding, his theological appreciation of life evolved and during the late 90s, he increasingly began to believe that there was no such thing as hell, that that contradicted the idea of a loving God. So he began preaching that to his megachurch. Well, something odd happened. The church that had been growing rapidly began instead to decline. Attendance began to drop as he week in and week out preached that there is no hellfire. You would think that that's a message that would make people happy. That they'd say that they'd feel relief, but no, that's not what happened. The congregation didn't want to hear that. They wanted the drama, the consequences, the excitement, the fear that attends a belief in hell. So they stopped coming. And then the governing body, this Pentecostal governing body, basically labeled 
Carlton Pearson a heretic. And they, they, what amounted to, kicked him out, excommunicated him for heresy. And why on earth did they do that? Well, it's kind of like the guy who's attending the Teen Wolf viewing party. And they're on the episode in which the climax of season one is taking place. And right during the most dramatic moment, some guy in the group stands up and says, oh, this is all nonsense, or starts making off-headed comments about how stupid the whole thing is or how ridiculous it is, or starts making jo- you know, someone who wrecks the dramatic vibe. And we all know people like that, don't we? Because it's no fun to go to a movie or, or be sitting at a Netflix binge-watching party, and then someone's talking over the actors and making jokes and, and wrecking it, wrecking this, this fantasy we're in the middle of when we're watching these things. And so if the dramatic choices that you've made for your own life are only exciting to you, only hold your interest, only enable you to suspend your own sense of disbelief about reality because you've harbored, you've protected some view about hell or eternal punishment, and all that's enabled you to focus on the dramatic elements of your life, and then someone stands up and says, oh, guess what? There's no hell after all. (laughs) Well, I mean, you know, That's like the guy who wrecks the movie at the movie theater by telling you how it ends. And nobody wants that. Of course, if you yourself want to be sane, opposed to insane, if you yourself want to be awake, opposed to asleep, in a dream, that's exactly what you need. If you want to be able to enjoy life a little more, you need to know that maybe you know, this whole hell idea is, is just, you know, kind of a cudgel, kind of a dramatic device. Or do you? Of course, that's where personal authority comes in. And that's where allowing others their personal authority comes in. That's when the either ors of life transform into the yes ands of life. Because there are a lot of people around you who like the dream that they're in who need the dream, who need the Leela that they're going through, who need the experience, who need to wrestle with how literal things should be taken. And the big mistake that many people make at a moment of realization or of growth or of awakening or of insight or however you want to describe it, the big mistake a lot of people make is that they feel like they have to browbeat everyone else into believing the same way they suddenly do now. The big mistake a lot of us make when we start having insights is we start to think that we're so much smarter than everyone else. And, and, ev- and we start to think of everyone else as so stupid and deluded and, and asleep and so dumb. And by so doing, we forget the role that our own dramas and our own Leela's, even though I know that's not the way you're supposed to use that term, but our own Leela's have taught us. We forget how the path that we have walked has shaped us. We do all that in the name of helping others. That's our high-minded belief, isn't it? Oh, we're helping others. But you don't help others by telling them the end of the movie while they're right in the middle of it. That's not helpful. There are better ways to help others. While I'm no God, I'm certainly no God, I find it interesting the way God helps us. Forget about any of the stories you've been taught. But if you believe in God, and I think most people who listen to this podcast do, if you believe in a creator, 
Your creator sent you to this place down here, this big sandbox, alone, and he is not around. And I know a lot of people believe in God, but I don't know very many people who've had dinner with him or have had a bishop's interview with God. And so how did God decide to help us? Well, God decided to close the curtains, make us forget, and here we are having an experience. Now, that doesn't mean that God isn't intervening in our lives, that God isn't guiding us. As you know from my podcast, I believe that God is guiding us, is intervening, is helping us, inspiring us all the time. We can feel God's presence. We can feel God's guidance. I believe in visions. I believe in, you know, really intimate experiences with God. Nonetheless, I'm not physically in the same realm as God is. That much I'm also pretty clear on. God, on the one hand, may be all around, but on the other hand, you know, he's not my office right now. He's not sitting on the couch in my living room. And so if we take God as an example of how to help others, it's, a, it's almost as if a hands-off approach is the best approach, a subtle, a vague, a nudging here and there, a, a helping in a way that you almost don't understand at the time. You only understand it looking at it retrospectively. And of course, we know this is true because we've all had parents or we've all had a teacher or we've all had someone in our life who has helped us in a way that we have not truly appreciated until we're old, like like they were when they helped us. Good parents do that, and good parents know they will never be thanked or appreciated until long after the fact. That's how you help. You help in a way, well, you help in a way like God helps, in an invisible way. And there are times when we really notice God in our lives, and there's times when we really appreciate our parents, but we don't notice God, nor do we appreciate our parents anywhere near as much as we should, because we simply cannot understand. Well, that's how we should help others. When you get to the point in life where you know the end of the movie, you got to help in a way, I'm sad to say, that's almost invisible. Where the person you're helping, the unenlightened, won't even notice. Jesus, of course, taught this. He said, if you're giving alms to be seen by others. Okay, if you're giving charity to people in order to be seen by others as being so charitable, well, that's your reward. You're going to be seen as charitable. You're going to get that status and that's it. Instead, you ought to give in a way that the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And we often interpret that to mean, well, you got to do it in a way that's anonymous so that you don't get lost in ego. And I think there's a bit of that to that teaching. But at a higher level, I think Jesus is teaching that you got to give in a way where there's no possibility of you getting the requisite appreciation, the commensurate glorification by those that you're helping. Because you have to help in a way, and you have, have to help those who, because of their state, are incapable of doing that until far after your help has been realized many years or decades after you've helped someone, then they'll appreciate it. And you'll be long gone. You'll be up with God. And then they, like you, can only turn towards people far behind them on the path. And their choice will be to help them anonymously 
or not. That, I think, is how God really helps us. And that's the model for us to help others. Maybe that's why charity is the most important thing of all. Charity, the true love of Christ. That's the greatest. And I hope everybody listening to this podcast today has had someone in their lives who has shown them charity in such a way that perhaps you didn't even notice it at the time. And if you didn't, if your experience with Leela deprived you of someone like that, don't forget that God was always there and in ways you probably didn't even notice. In the end, it all makes sense. And if it doesn't make sense to you, well, it's probably not the end yet. And that'll sound like a dramatic cop-out. And it might bug you. But one day your drama will end. Just like dramas for everyone will end. And all you'll have left is your wisdom. And then a choice to be wise in how you help someone else or not. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com. Until next time.